Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology is Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Not too bad. I am finally roused from what became a two hour nap. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be like 20 minutes. I was really grumpy and a bit sad, I'll be honest. Um, might have had something to do with the fact uh, my cat woke me up just after five and uh, I struggled to get back to sleep and then I thought oh well I know what will take the edge off this shutting my eyes and pretending the world doesn't exist for a bit turned out my body really liked that and kept on going but I'm feeling oh I'm I'm staying alert Ed and I feel so <laughs> much better for it how are yeah. you? Uh, I'm good I'm looking out for any viruses in trench coats which I <laughs> presume is what that means uh, or seeing if anyone has left any boxes of coronavirus just out in the train stations and just like reporting it because they uh, glow you know they have that kind of womp 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 that's that's yeah, exactly. how you know yeah yeah or um they kind of like are shuffling they don't really speak like normal people they kind of groan they're undead that's kind of the the the, the clues that you really need to look out for absolutely um, they're lying about having a bite mark <laughs> all yeah. of these common signs of coronavirus to keep an eye out for yeah i'm i'm doing okay i had a i had a nap last night that i didn't intend to take i just kind of was on my sofa i think i was just listening to a podcast and i just kind of like closed my eyes also like my allergies have been terrible this week oh. so i've just been like a little bit headachey from uh, all the time i think ah this will be fine and then woke up and it was like 10 at night and like, oh that was longer than I anticipated <laughs> but also I've had like a fairly the last couple of days have been very very talk heavy for me in terms of talking to people on Skype and Zoom I was just telling you that on Friday I spoke to uh, friends of the show John and Michaela Livingston Banks who had said to me oh you know one thing we'd like to do is like to try and do movie nights uh, over over zoom because that's something we've been doing we, you know, we've been watching drag race with friends and we've been watching opera with different groups of friends and you know we'd really like to kind of try and do something with a movie night and they said let's watch this movie called 12 12 12 which is the lowest rated horror movie on imdb <gasps> and i said uh, I was like, okay, sure. And then they said, but we can also watch a good movie afterwards if you like. I said, okay, that's fine. So it ended up being like a six-hour Skype call where we watched two movies and chatted a bit in between, which was really fun, but like that's a long time to just kind of keep up the energy of kind of entertaining each other whilst you're watching a truly terrible movie like 12, 12, 12. And it is very, very bad for people who don't know, and why would you? It's a horror movie from The Asylum, although it's not a mockbuster or anything like that. It's one of their rare attempts at a original property, although I say original, it's basically The Omen. Yeah. You know, d- demon child being born to a woman and, you know, cultists trying to grab the baby and things like that. But unlike The Omen, it's not made by people who are good at making movies. It's very poorly acted. The baby itself is at no point a a real baby it's just kind of a terrible puppet who looks incredibly fake if people want to google it and look it up it is a real bad puppet that gets increasingly worse over the course of the movie as it gets speckled with blood and dirt and eventually grows horns i'm looking Uh, up right now (laughs) it doesn't look any better in motion i can tell you wait whoa (laughs) oh no <laughs> I'm like I'm like the inverse of that Herna Vertzog, um Herna I did that. <laughs> I'm so shocked, Ed. I just spoonerismed one of the most legendary directors. <laughs> Ferner Herzog. The curse. It's coming for me, Ed. <laughs> um, I feel like the inverse of that show me the baby meme, like, oh, why did I even Oh, look at him really going for him at the neck. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Where whereas in the Omen, it's like oh, a, ba- a demon child is born and bad things start to happen to people. The baby often 
yeah, like you say, goes for the people's necks, tears it out. Uh, I'm pretty sure, I mean, as soon as it's born, it kills the doctor and the nurse in the operating room, and uh, I'm pretty sure strangles one of them with the umbilical cord, although it's not entirely it's not entirely clear because the people who make the movie aren't that good at like showing the gore. It's more just kind of like close up on people looking panicked whilst clearly holding a puppet against their own neck. And, or, but there are, I, I would say the first, if people want to watch this and I, I wouldn't really recommend it cause it's, it's, there's long stretches of it. That's very boring, but I would recommend you watch like the first 15 minutes and the last half hour. Cause the first 15 minutes is where it's at. It's, it's craziest because the <laughs> one it's it starts with the baby killing two people in a in an operating th- well not even operating theater it's just like a a uh, a regular hospital room that they clearly just rented and trying to get as much time out as possible so it kills the doctor and the nurse but then the next scene is like the police have shown up and they're interviewing another nurse and the nurse being interviewed has such a casual demeanor as she's standing next to her two murdered colleagues that i found it really really funny <laughs> just being <laughs> being standing there and almost being like yeah it happens all the time this is the third one this week god you know yeah and when did you, you know. think your child might be the devil incarnate uh, it's really <laughs> hard to pinpoint actually you know what what you were saying there in terms of watching the first like 15 minutes and then the final 10 i did the exact same thing with my flatmate the other night there is a film uh, there's a film called little italy are you aware of it <laughs> i've heard of it yeah <laughs> This seems to be the reaction that it causes in most people, right? So we saw it on Netflix because Mm -hmm. we were looking for They Came Together, which is sadly no longer on UK Netflix. Sort it out, please. Lockdown, hello. But we'd watched You've Got Mail because my flatmate Mm -hmm. had never seen You've Got Mail before. It is an utter delight to see someone watch You've Got Mail before. uh, If they haven't before, sorry, for the first time. And afterwards yeah we were like oh romantic films let's see what netflix is suggesting uh, suggesting and then we saw little italy and we we're like and my flatmate said you know i've heard tell of this <laughs> again it was a bit like <laughs> a bit like the ring um okay right let's do it it stars hayden christensen and emma roberts who are inexplicably their agents deserve a raise mm-hmm. if nothing else in order for just like getting them into that film yeah even though they should immediately be fired because <laughs> they are now in that film but thanks to some very heavy-duty brown hair dye and mm-hmm. some questionable accents, they are Italian-American. Right. And <laughs> Jane Seymour's in it for, like, five seconds. We kind of... Even the premise was really, like, wearing on us um, mm. in terms of the opening voiceover and, and we looked at each other and we're like, we don't... Even though it's lockdown, we don't have to waste our lives watching bad things. But mm. I was invested to the point where I was like, I don't, let's just skip to the last 10 minutes. Really recommend it, honestly. And I also recommend just kind of like slowly fast forwarding so that you get a kind of flick book of <laughs> uh, what what passes. A lot of kind of horny grandparents like right and to the point where we're like actually we'd have preferred if this weren't a subplot and it were the main plot um but yes wow that was oh a spicy meatball ed i think the thing to uh keep in mind with 12 12 12 if you do skip to the final half hour though is at a certain point the main character will be running around the street screaming for her demon baby and people will be running up to her, talking to her, and it'll seem like these characters are people that you would have met in the first hour. They are not. They are people who are all introduced in this one five-minute scene and for the most part are never seen again. And it's among the more chaotic pieces of filmmaking I've ever seen where (laughs) she's just running along. A priest who we've never met before is coming along talking about how he wants to save her, and you're like, where are you? Why weren't you here earlier? Why were we spending all the time with her sister who's constantly talking about how the baby's a pervert you know it seems like the priest probably would have shown up a little earlier than all of this uh and then there's a bunch of tough teens one of whom is just starts harassing her but then immediately gets shot yeah it's it's very strange also the first 10 minutes has the moment that kind of made me think oh this movie's wild it's going to be a good time and then immediately it stopped being fun mm. which, which was the uh the main character is 
has come home from the hospital after a C-section after about a week, which doesn't seem like enough time. I'm pretty sure it takes. I'm pretty sure it takes a little longer to recover from a C-section than a week. Also, the movie takes place as you would expect around Christmas time, but there's no Christmas decorations in any of the scenes, which is weird. <laughs> and uh, at one point, she is kind of like you know kind of like writhing in ecstasy you know this kind of sense of like oh you think her you know her husband is 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 performing oral sex on her you know like oh so you know like they're getting back into the swing of things i guess although still after a week and after a c-section probably not but then oh my god it's the baby doing it oh what <laughs> which no is like, yeah which is gross and did make me say that oh man this movie should be called cooked by my own baby but uh, sadly it is not uh, and immediately after that the husband uh, in one of the many scenes in which a character just kind of kills themselves through, you know, malevolent, uh, malevolent influence, goes to make himself a cup of coffee and then instead of drinking, pouring the hot water into the cup, just pours it into his own mouth and uh, dies just kind of throwing up tho- foam in a way that doesn't look particularly convincing. Yeah. After that, the movie kind of becomes really kind of drab and uninteresting. And, but yeah, that first 15 minutes kind of portends like a gonzo exploitation flick, which unfortunately doesn't uh, appear. But yeah, so if anyone wants to see that truly horrendous thing and then skip the last half hour of just complete craziness, then that's the way to watch 12 to 12. There is no other way that I would recommend people <laughs> watch the movie because <laughs> it, it is yeah it's just it's just terrible uh, but then after that we watched Science of the Lambs which is a good horror movie um, as I'm sure everyone knows uh, and it was quite fun watching it and yeah this is the first time I've watched it in a while and probably the first time since I've like really been on a demi kick so it was really interesting you know having for years thought that it was kind of out of step in his oeuvre and in some ways it is but you know noticing his use of close-ups and things like that being able to say oh yeah this very clearly falls within his his body of work and you can so clearly see his style and his approach in it even if uh, generically it's wildly different to pretty much anything he did before or after Demi! Yes! Oh, I miss Jonathan Demi Yeah even though like in the last couple of years he was mainly just making you know Neil Young documentaries and occasionally making direct uh, uh, um, dramatic features that didn't necessarily hold together. Like he was such a a wonderful presence and someone who you could guarantee would do something interesting in movies, even when you know they weren't one hundred percent successful. Mm-hmm. Rookie in the Flash, pretty good movie. I watched that for the first time recently and I really enjoyed that. Real good uh, Diabra Cody script. I'm very fond of that film, Ed. That might surprise you to know, but I am. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's a very, it's a very weird film also to watch now in 2020 because um, yeah. one of the things that's like really striking about it and a really interesting choice and probably seems to come from like, I, I think the character is based on like Diablo Cody's mother-in-law um, the character of Ricky is that she's like really conservative and she's constantly complaining about Obama and talking about like the hating the president. It's just a really weird thing to hear from that perspective after four years of it very much being on the other foot of the people who hate the president not being conservatives. Mm. Uh, but yes, good, good, good movie that uh, didn't really get much of a fair shake when it came out. I don't think and it's kind of a shame. So uh, there's no real news to talk about this week, so we'll go straight on to the main topic, which uh, is our favourite actors. And this was inspired by, uh, you know, the the week I, I mentioned on the show, I watched True Stories for the first time, the David Byrne movie, which I've been thinking about a lot since then, mostly because of John Goodman's performance in it. And it's a very good performance from John Goodman, as often, his performances often are. But as I was watching the movie and thinking about it afterwards, I suddenly realised that John Goodman may be one of my favourite actors ever, which is not a surprising choice, I don't think, because he's very good and he's been in lots of good things and he's always kind of a reliable performer. But it kind of it was not something I'd really thought seriously about before, the notion of him being like in the top 10 for me but when I kind of list all of the projects that he's done and how long I've been watching his work when you consider like you know as a kid I was such a huge fan of Roseanne and particularly like really related to his performance because he really reminds me 
he he and uh, Roseanne's performance really remind me of my paternal grandparents yeah. who are very very similar to that in their kind of demeanor and dynamic and I just kind of like really and, and just like that whole depiction of like working class family where all of the kids they're all very close knit and the kids are always coming to visit and the grandkids are always coming to visit that was very much my experience of going to visit my grandparents house and like everyone was always underfoot and everything so like that show always really spoke to me in a major way and just like over the years following his career like digging in deeper and deeper I always found there was like more to discover more layers to him as a performer um, so that you know even at the time that he was at his kind of popular peak when he was in Roseanne and starring in like King Ralph he was also you know putting in an absolutely incredible supporting turn in Barton Fink and yeah so, so thinking about his career and my relation to, to it over time was what kind of got me thinking about other actors that I like really respond to and I thought it'd be fun to kind of like talk about some of our some of our favourite actors on this episode. Oh, yeah, I just want to come to John Goodman. I think that's such an excellent shout, Ed. He is... I know we've spoken a little bit over the past couple of weeks in terms of uh, both typecasting and range, but I think <clears throat> John Goodman is someone who, particularly in the Coen Brothers films, mm. just really kind of sinks in, and you he's someone who can really embody a character who's quite out there, but never like <clears throat> never like tips into caricature like in in like Barton Fink and what is that meme's been going around with him because the film's on the Criterion collection and I've completely forgotten the film where he's in the pink suit and talking about sad music that's true stories oh right gotcha yeah. like that's lovely and he's and just as Walter in the Big Lebowski which is something I could watch over and over again he manages to kind of not turn him into a complete fool but mm. he's kind of clowny and yet has so much pain that like Walter has it all going on and he manages to hold like hold space for Walter that you do believe he's real like he's comic mm. but he's not totally unbelievable so he is an excellent one to kick us off Ed uh, when when um you suggested this topic I thought great excellent i wasn't sure how i was going to narrow it down but i realized in making just a list of every one of the top of my head there's kind of a a few circles in this venn diagram which <clears throat> which cover a general horniness i feel towards them let's be honest their significant talent a lack of problematic behavior um <clears throat> is always a win and of course that's hopefully because it doesn't exist at all, not that it's there and hasn't been reported. Yeah. And I also realised how horribly uh, internally racist I am because I look back at my list and it was completely white. So, mm. so I would like to go on the record as saying, I'm very sorry, and it's not that I don't enjoy the work of actors of colour. It's just realising, oh, I'm so horribly white and the majority of what I have seen and grown up with and that was available to me is generally white so i wanted to put that on the record and i'm i'm ashamed of myself frankly i i kind of had the same realization as i was putting my list together and i think that there is a part of it is just like as a kid those were the like, like mainly watching movies that feature white people but also when i was putting together my list i kind of had a kind of a rule in mind of like it has to be people who have done like a pretty significant amount of work because it feels it feels weird for me to say like a someone's a favorite actor if they've only been in like five or six movies like it kind of feels like you have to have had a, a kind of a bit more of a breadth of experience and so like people who cropped up for me who weren't white were people like Lakeith Stanfield who I think is like an incredible performer who I love in everything but also is still very early on in his career so I kind of feel like it needs to be like another five years or so before I can really put him in those in that consideration or someone like Lupita Nyong'o who I think is an incredible performer who was fantastic in Us last year and I think has done great work but 
also hasn't worked that much, unfortunately, just because of the way Hollywood works. So like, oh yeah, because racism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's racism like all the way down for it. So it's 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 it's, it's per- partly you know a problem with me, but also I feel like you know we're unfortunately limited in the work that we can see because of the work that's produced. Yeah. So, so it yeah. was a good wake up call for me to look at it and realize <clears> how poorly I've been doing in terms of watching stuff from further afield and or, or even or even sorry again that's such a horrible sort of assumption even homegrown stuff um I think Riz Ahmed though is definitely up there for me um someone who springs to mind and is so active and has um the Riz test which is a really brilliant simple test for like what, what is this like Muslim representation on screen is it stereotypical mm-hmm. so that's well worth a follow um, I think it's still going on like Twitter and Instagram and I love him like in Brits and in Four Lions in particular I think I think he's just so good in Four Lions which I think celebrated coming out 10 years ago a couple of maybe yeah. last week yeah good good Sheffield Fair which you and I appreciate Ed yep good use of Meadow Hall in there oh yeah which uh, <laughs> very few places very few films ever kind of uh, take advantage of it's almost like Meadowhall is a character in the film <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm really gutted I didn't get to rewatch they came together as you can probably tell Ed but it, it's a shame that he's not in more and it and yeah that's not on him <laughs> and it's difficult mm. to watch people when they're not being cast in stuff yeah so with that in mind and me realizing I desperately need to rectify um, the diversity of my list. Get ready for a lot of white people, Ed. <laughs> yeah. The, the sort of first person that sprung to my mind, I think because of succession just being tailor made for me and my tastes, um, mm-hmm. is Brian Cox. Sure. I think he is, he's just this really wonderful mix of playing these like absolute titans on screen. And then in interviews, seeming like incredibly sweet and meek, and mm-hmm. he he he's got that real like working class acting is graft and craft aspect to him that I really mm-hmm. like and really respond to, and he has a lot of elegance about him. I think he he's sometimes like this big Cheshire cat, like he'll he'll just sit there and he doesn't have to do an awful lot, but he can inhabit these really vicious characters like have you seen um lie long island expressway yes i have our uh our former co-host matt risby once lent that to me on dvd and it's very very good excellent disturbing and he is so good in it with, with very little paul dano i think it's paul dano's first first <clears> film <throat> yeah and then of course in in succession but i think he manages to he's he's just a bit like John Goodman, actually, I think, can take the edge off something that other actors might lean into and go really big. Like, I think he just he just knows how to... He appreciates the kind of rhythm and cycle of emotion and just brings that out in the writing and, and the directing. And, oh, I think he's, I think he's fab. And al- along with that, Stephen Ray. Mm. Bloody oh, yeah. love Stephen Ray. Like, The Crying Game will always be one of my favourite films, Ed. I think it's still, uh, like, I, I'm just, like, bamboozled, as they say, um, on the internet by how that film got made in 1992. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> how just kind of brilliant and radical and loving it is. And he is phenomenal in it. And then he's also in, oh, God, is that, what is that? slightly it's not an amazing film but it's about a band that kind of gets back together I think he's the manager The Commitments? No uh. it's not The Commitments hang on a sec because he just manages to look all sort of like grumpy and but still very endearing oh he's in V for Vendetta I always forget that yes plays the uh, the cop who in the comic makes a kind of great revelation about who V is by taking acid and wandering around London which they didn't do in the film which I think is a shame because I really do feel like that's a, uh, a, a an interesting direction to take a mainstream movie of just being like yeah he just kind of figures it out on acid 
as so many of us have and will continue to do. <laughs> is it still crazy? I think it's still crazy. Yes, it's still crazy. <laughs> uh, which was written by Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, and it's such a soft, daft... Like, Billy Connolly and um, Jimmy Nail are in it, if you want, kind of... <laughs> Right, okay. <laughs> to triangulate yeah. where it sits. But he was also in uh, Cypress Avenue, which is one of the most disturbing plays I have ever seen. And he is remarkable in it. Um, so, yeah, I like that kind of... I think there's... And maybe it's something now in terms of... It, it's that kind of age range of men who are running the world. Mm-hmm. And that the two of them managed to find hesitate to say like empathy or sympathy but they find an accessibility and a way into these really domineering characters that is engaging yes i think uh or the word that i kind of thought of when i was thinking about john goodman is that he's a very compassionate performer i feel Mm. in that he manages to find the kernel of humanity in all the characters he's playing and they all feel like people have wants and needs even when like you say when they are verging on the uh, level of caricature or you know if it's a, even a character like the, the the cyclops that he plays in in oh brother where art thou where he's just a full-on mythic figure in this kind of retelling of the odyssey and even then you kind of get a real sense that he is he is someone who has his reasons for what he's doing and like he is like a, a human character in this kind of big gaudy kind of like over-the-top cartoonish world that the Coen brothers create and I feel like that's something that's also true of uh, of Stephen Ray or Brian Cox like they're all very much in that same sort of area of people who are just able to really bring out the humanity in characters who otherwise yeah I mean like Stephen Ray I think tends to play nicer characters than Brian Cox because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think once I mean, once you play Hannibal Lecter, you're always going to get cast as slightly nasty people, as Brian Cox was. But, you know, like, they all are able to play these characters who, as immediately on screen, there's something about how, like, rumpled they are that you kind of feel a real connection to them. Like, they really do feel like people have gone out in the world and had a little bit of a bad time of it. The next person on my list that uh, I thought of after John Goodman uh, was someone who we talked about a little bit uh, before, I think, when we talked about our episode on uh, on range, I think, was uh, Elizabeth Moss, who is mm. someone who um, whose career I've been watching now for, like, over 20 years because I was a big fan of The West Wing when I was a teenager, and uh, I always used to really like her as Zoe Bartlett, even though the role, you know, going back and re-watching that show, they don't give a huge amount to her to do. She's mainly there to kind of occasionally needle her father or flirt with Charlie um, although their relationship is like surprisingly well written it was never like it was a good showcase for her but not necessarily like a great well written role she, it was just like oh she's very good at this and over the years seeing her move into things like Mad Men where she's like you know Peggy Olsen probably one of the great performances of the last 20 years I think that she's so incredible on that show and how she traverses the the story of that and and more recently her collaborations with Alex Ross Perry where you know she's great in her smell where she's you know the uh, centerpiece of this story playing a sort of Courtney Love style right right girl figure who who's deterioration or uh, over the course of the movie and her struggles with substance addiction are you know kind of like so central she still brings such a sense of humanity to the character or queen of earth where she's like you know the centerpiece of this very polanski-esque psychological thriller where she's kind of constantly uh, you know her sanity seems to be slipping away all the time like she's very good at providing the center for these sort of movies and then you know most recently uh before all the cinemas closed down she was given a kind of a great leading role in a mainstream movie in the invisible man in which she is like hugely compelling hugely uh, a sympathetic, you know, is this this woman who is being uh, essentially stalked by her ex, who is, you know, the Invisible Man, and you know, kind of uh, giving this slightly, you know, this this movie that is, you know, very much about the experience of being a woman in the world of being like hounded by men, and giving it this kind of like sci-fi horror tinge. Like her performance is so key 
to selling that idea of, of someone who has escaped this abusive relationship and now is being disbelieved by everyone around them because the thing that's happening thing to her is seems so crazy. Okay. And uh, I just think that she is someone who is... Every, everything that I've ever seen her in, she has been just, like, such a highlight. And I really, I really, really hope that she continues to kind of get leading roles once they start making movies again and that you know she gets more opportunities to really do that on a bigger stage i'm gutted i didn't get to see the invisible man because i think it started to come out at time when i was busy and just before all of this started i think she's i've really enjoyed seeing her like expand her range and actually as we mentioned with peter nyongo i think she's particularly fantastic in us like i'd love to see her in more comic roles because mm-hmm. that was really satisfying to see and kind of following on from Elizabeth Moss because I think they're in a similar kind of channel having done TV work and film work and really great comics of satirical roles but also a lot of horror Tony Collette mm. oh yeah who I think is amazing uh, in everything she does like from Muriel's wedding all the way up to you know things like hereditary about a boy i think she doesn't get enough for she's so mm. real and like it's 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 painful how how believable she is and she is such a chameleon like i know she's spoken quite frankly about her own troubles with like bulimia and, and self-image working in such an image obsessed industry I think she looks glorious and that she just I, I keep thinking about like the thing is right I'm someone who wasn't that keen on knives out so shoot me <clears> or stab me whichever you prefer but every so often I just think of her dancing in it and I'm <clears> like <throat> with Jamie Lee Curtis and I'm like not not joining in and I'm like oh it's not all that bad because <laughs> it gave me it gave me that like 10 seconds yeah I think that was the thing I, I thought of just in terms of again to go back to the notion of range like her being in that movie where she is doing this kind of very over-the-top kind of comic performance of playing a sort of like you know vaguely Gwyneth Paltrow-y kind of you know wellness guru figure that and then you know a year earlier being in Hereditary where it's such a like a totally different mode and so totally totally different skill set required like it's a real showcase for how good she is just a you know anything you slot her into really mm. uh, you were uh, mentioning about a boy there also uh, remind me of someone on, on my list which is uh rachel weiss oh who is someone i mean earlier we, we talked about uh, uh uh horniness and thirst like she is someone who has definitely been a crush of mine since i saw the mummy like like she's just someone who like from a young age being like oh right yes the prettiest person maybe i've ever seen <laughs> but which certainly was like the reason that i would then go and watch like the fountain and things like that because like she was just such a compelling figure for me but you know sometimes that leads you to a deep abiding appreciation for someone's work and the fact that they are you know kind of like a really varied performer who's able to kind of do very different things and i think it's it's been really nice seeing her you know like in the favorite two years ago after you know she had been this star of these kind of like huge blockbusters in the like late 90s early 2000s i think people sometimes forget just how big the first two mummy movies were um to the extent that i think they still do have a ride based on the mummy at universal studios certainly that was like their big thing in the mid 2000s was like we've made a roller coaster based on the mummy i was like but there was only like two films in that series and then you made like a thousand scorpion kings (laughs) it's just like (laughs) doesn't necessarily seem like the strongest basis but it's a great ride so fair play to them oh actually it may have been replaced by fast and furious now but anyway um it was a great ride and it was definitely a sign of just how much stock universal had in that franchise and just how big it was at the turn of the century uh to see her kind of like become more kind of fated as a uh as someone who can go into these kind of like smaller more intense roles like you know she's fantastic in the favorite she's so good at playing this kind of like acerbic powerful figure who's keenly aware of her own power within this really cloistered world of you know the 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 royal court but also 
very aware of the fragility of that and how easily all that can go away and her kind of like power struggle with Emma Stone and it's been really great seeing her take on role and like some of the stuff that she's done in the years haven't been like great like I thought uh, it's a shame that she and Timothy Spall who's also on my list were both in that terrible movie Denial about David Irving which oh was like just yeah such... that was real real worthy subject not a film worthy of the subject unfortunately given but... that it's so like that's exactly what we're dealing with now it felt like mm. completely from a different time when it could have felt like incredibly relevant yeah just odd i'm with you on that one uh, but yeah she she is someone who just like is so seems so willing to just kind of take big risks on things as well which i think is something i appreciate like the fountain is a big is a big big swing <laughs> for someone to kind of uh take a chance on and yeah i think that she's she's great in all the roles that she plays in that movie and i think she's she's just someone who every, every time i hear that she's involved in a project i'm like oh cool that could be fun that could be interesting which i think is also just kind of one of the one of the criteria i had in putting together my list was just thinking like whose name when i see it in a cast list do i think okay right i'm definitely gonna have to at least check that out at some point absolutely i know exactly how you feel i think the fountain is ultimate wife points she's great in it don't (laughs) get me wrong but like that was a solid she did darren and yet riding boots the favorite Mm -hmm. of course Yes, moving on. In terms of what you <laughs> in terms of what you said there, Ed, of that person you see in the cast list, and you're like, I've got to see it. That for me, I've realised more and more belongs to Catherine Hahn. Oh yes. Um, yes. I discovered Mrs. Fletcher this week, which is so good. Seven episodes by thirty minutes. You should watch it just because it has the perfect format, <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> and it's so well written, so well acted really funny and kind of like genuine and grounded and I've not I haven't really seen a lot of Tom Perotta's stuff since election um, Mm -hmm. but I really really like this and I tweeted about it whilst I was I watched it all in a day Ed I watched it all in a day that I could genuinely watch her as a middle aged woman discovering herself over and over again like I do not I do not care and again maybe this kind of edges into typecasting but she manages to in Private Lives I Love Dick Mrs. Fletcher Afternoon Delight look like herself I swear she just turns up in her own clothes having done her (laughs) own hair and she's like great yeah let's roll I'm ready and still manages to make these women completely unique and distinct Mm, I think there's something incredible about that and it's always lovely seeing her pop up in things kind of being the kind of best friend or bit part and then really coming into her own i'd love to see her do something a bit more like madcap maybe but it's really satisfying i know whatever i watch in that very specific genre (laughs) she's gonna be amazing in her career arc has been really nice to see like over the last couple of years as she has been given more significant roles like leading roles and co-leading roles when you look back on her work and think oh she's had this real kind of natural bubbling up of a career of being like like you say someone who shows up in bit parts and is just constantly killing it in these kind of smaller roles and you know just up till a certain point where you know she's like the third lead or you know in the certainly the top billing in the bad moms movies where you kind of think oh right i did i didn't quite realize that she was on the same level as a Kristen bell and a uh mila kunis but i guess she is and that's oh, quite nice. nice to see and then yeah obviously i mean i don't know what was the kind of like the the, the breakthrough role for her but maybe the one that I remember really thinking of, like, oh, it really feels as if she's arrived, may have been, like, her supporting role on Transparent, where she played, like, the rabbi, who's always kind of, like, showing up and talking to members of the family, where it really felt as if she had reached a point where Catherine Harm being in a thing was, like, a big deal, and not just, you know, a nice delight of this great character actor who's always good <laughs> showing up and being good. Looking at, kind of, like... um actors of, of previous eras for, for a second um, one of the films that I watched this week because I've, I've started watching movies first thing in the morning because usually my 
work day doesn't start till about 10 a.m. and I'm usually awake by like seven. So mm. there's a lot of there's a lot of time to fill in the day, Emily. So you know you've got to try and do what you can. So I usually try and watch a movie before work, and one of the ones I watched this week was The Out of Towners, the oh. uh, comedy from 1970 starring uh, Jack Lemmon and Sandy Dennis, and not Sandy Duncan, as I keep wanting to say, Sandy Dennis, and it's not for me kind of like a top tier kind of movie in terms of your know, stuff that Neil Simon's written and some of the stuff that Jack Lemmon's in but uh, I, it did remind me just how much I love Jack Lemmon and how much he was like a real formative actor for me when I really started getting into older movies like for, through his work with Billy Wilder obviously The Apartment which is still one of my all time favourite movies and I think he's absolutely uh, uh, marvellous in it but the thing about the outer town is that to showcases really really well is just how good he is at playing frustration because that entire movie is him and his wife played by sandy dennis going trying to go to new york because he's going to get a, he's interviewing for a promotion to be the vice president of the company that he works for the plane can't land because of bad weather so they have to go to boston they have to get a train from boston to new york and they miss the train so they have to then get a cab to a different train station and like this constant series of disasters befalling them like these small things that just spiral out and the thing that's really really funny in the movie is the fact that jack lemon cannot realize that he is causing the problems or that he is making it worse he is just kind of like bold barreling forward with bad decisions and not really being able to understand that he's making the situation which isn't great even worse for himself and that quality is something that i just respond to so much in his performances because it always feels real there is that kind of almost frank grimes quality of someone who is more or less a normal person <laughs> trying to understand and react to an insane cartoon world around them and i feel like jack lemon was someone who was so good at embodying that and and he was so simultaneously very broad in terms of like he knows how to kind of like go for a big laugh but also so specific in like making his characters feel like real people with you know real lives and ambitions and the, the the flaws that he brings forward in that character in the outer towners are really crucial to the movie working overall because you have to believe that this guy is so pig-headed that he can't possibly understand that he's the one who's his own he's the biggest problem in the movie because he can't stop for a moment and think okay what's the best choice of option here he just has to keep barreling through absolutely and if we're talking slightly different eras although i think she may still be she may still be up for a project if it's right uh jenna rowlands mm. oh yeah 100 percent. i think is the best actress of all time <laughs> all time i think she without i know this sounds kind of weird as a distinction but she manages to like give the most incredible performance without being showy mm-hmm. it's not about her and this is the thing that I find quite irritating with, and a lot of it is to do with like the industry and awards, is that kind of, I feel like I want to be able to look at an actor and just see their character, um, mm. not the person who's, not the person who's doing it, even though I know, anywho, the suspension of disbelief and cognitive effects of watching people pretend to be other people aside. A woman under the influence is one of the most... I think it's just a performance that just stays with you because you do feel like mm. you're watching a real person and that yeah. she gave herself over so completely to that role but also in like in faces all of her collaborations with John Cassavetes her husband I think as a team they brought out the absolute best in each other mm. and I think that's rare to see as well but I think John Cassavetes just knew like and I think there's something quite she's got that sort of theatre feeling about her like you f- you don't feel like you're watching someone on the screen like you feel like you're there with her mm-hmm. and she just draws you in and I just I just love her I get a bit like tongue-tied and I can't really describe it because I think it's better to just instead of me talking about it I'm just like everyone just go watch a woman under the influence or faces you know yeah I, I totally 
get that in certainly in regards to her performances because I feel like the first time I really heard about her work was probably in some like documentary about like greatest performances of all time or greatest movies of all time or something something where they just showed clips of her work and I remember at the time thinking that seems good but I don't see quite why you know everyone's talking about her like so rapturously you know and like why the talking heads are really kind of beating this sort of thing up and then I sat down and actually watched it and it's like oh right you know this is like a real full body performance and if you are sitting there and you are spending time with that character as opposed to having people talk about why this is such a great performance or just seeing like brief bursts of it you really get a sense of this person completely giving themselves over to a role in a way that so few actors you know ever really seem to do like there's no self-consciousness to what she's doing which is why it's, it's that weird thing where it's clearly something that's very difficult to do in a series clearly something that requires a great deal of skill as an actor but it feels so much at points like you're just watching a documentary about this person and you know like Cassavetti's style with it kind of being very loose and like holding back a little bit you know kind of contributes to that thing that you could totally just show it to someone and say oh this is like a documentary about this this woman and I think people would you know to a certain point uh, believe them because it is so real but that conversely can make it seem like she's not acting at all and it's kind of that weird that weird balance yes totally and I think there's nothing wrong with kind of sorry I don't want to sound like I'm doing down on like being quite knowing of the performance and just kind of going for it but I know mm. I may not know art Ed but I know what I like and mm. uh, what I like is art <laughs> or I, I do like that immersion I really do and but there are things like I guess it depends on the style of the film like John Cassavetes had that very naturalised style um, but I mean I've also got um, on my list Anna Karina and Julieta Messina Mm, you know who yeah. are both incredible and Anna Karina and, and you know a lot of Goddard's films they are very stylized and curated and clipped to make a point but that's part of like the joy of artifice and, and films it's still not kind of she manages to do so much in terms of getting attention and is really like cheeky and in on it in stuff like um Infame to infam. Um mm. and then incredibly uh moving and real in sort of the you know, the gr- the gritty BAFTA sort of work like Viva Savi and Julieta Messina again is just one of my all time favourites because of her ability to switch between kind of I guess like again it's this getting to the truth of it and truth can be comic, it can be tragic, it can be both. La Strada is still on movie, by the way, folks. Um, movie UK for a fair while. And if you're not familiar with Julieta Messina, then just absolutely watch La Strada because um, that's a great a great way in. And then follow that up with um, Nights of uh, I'm never going to pronounce it right. Cap Carib Cap Cabiria. Yes, what you said, Ed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, the, and and other like, and I like a lot of sort of there's a lot to be said for maximalism particularly in terms of the if you are working with directors who tend to go sort of like bigger like I've also got Mm. Emma Thompson and Laura Dern on here sure like Laura Dern is you put her in again one of those like I have to see this because Laura Dern's in it and as I said to you there is the Laura Dern effect which is I'm watching something 20 minutes in not that keen Laura Dern pops up and then I'm I'm in it I'm in it for the long Mm. run that was that was my (laughs) Oscar viewing last year Little Women and Marriage Story and she in you know I'm not going to say like oh she's so grounded in Jurassic Park but you do believe that she's actually seeing dinosaurs and that was definitely Mm -hmm. a moment of her running around in her safari shorts and being all clever that was definitely a moment that that (laughs) that, that has stayed with me forever and how much fun she's having in Big Little Lies and playing Mm. these really kind of like outrageous characters but then also in Inland Empire kind of you know that maximalism of a different kind of maximalism which is kind of embodying like moods sorry mm. it basically made inland empire sounds like a sequence of memes which in some ways you could argue it kind of is she is big moods from start to finish but she is so 
porous and and like shape you know i mean it's blue velvet isn't it she's kind of all sweetness and light but has this grit to her as well mm. yeah i was gonna mention blue velvet but also like that as contrasted against like her performance in wild at heart yeah where she's working with the same director but in one place like, say there's that kind of there's that sweetness and that kind of mid 20th century americana quality to blue velvet that he's clearly clearly trying to invoke with her in contrast to you know like what isabella isabella rossellini represents in the world of of dennis hopper's character frank booth but then in uh in wild at heart she's just like complete uncorked sensuality for like the whole movie like there's just a real sense that she is feeling things at a level of intensity that you know most people don't <laughs> she and and nick cage are both very much kind of operating on a level of pure sensation throughout the whole movie and it's not impossible to imagine other actors being able to uh being able to embody both of those ideas but it she does it with a, uh, such a such a skill and such a level of control and such a sense of differentiation between the two characters that it is totally possible to kind of forget that it's the same actor which is a real kind of which is quite a thing considering that Laura Dern is an incredibly distinct looking actor actor who is just like every time you see it, it's like oh obviously that's Laura Dern <laughs> she's like unmistakable but as soon as she actually starts performing like that goes away and she really does embody these characters in a, in a really palpable way mm. And I'd say that for Emma Thompson as well, who also bundled her in with. Um, I watched Late Night recently, as, as you know, um, uh, patchy, but still um, she is really, really good. Mm. Starting off again as this kind of tyrant, but showing a fair bit of vulnerability. And I think maybe that's more of the issue with the late night I think it decided to go harder on the darker stuff than anyone really anticipated it would um, mm-hmm. and the plot hole of Hugh Dancy <laughs> the Hugh Dancy showed plot hole just kind of like it's like oh he's just gone he just disappears but you know her work in Peter's Friends Stranger Than Fiction her writing as well I think she's and she's just such a incredible multi-hyphenate threat and in Sense and Sensibility, Saving Mr. Banks. I will, I, I think there's, like, maybe she's basically the redeeming bit of Love Actually. I was going to mention Love Actually. Like, her performance is great when she's, you know, when she realises that Alan Rickman's bought a gift for someone else. And, you know, she's kind of, like, crying sadly to it whilst listening to uh, Joni Mitchell. Or well, Joan, Joan Baez. It's Joni um, Mitchell. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, it's a Joni Mitchell, and just kind of like, there, it's just such a wonderful performance from her in a movie that otherwise has sort of so little recognisable humanity. <laughs> to it. Otherwise, everyone else in that movie is like so over the top and cartoonish and buffoonish, and like the the plot lines are like really kind of like over the top. It's like, oh, it's the prime minister dancing to girls aloud. Yeah. And, telling the president to go fuck himself and oh it's the two you know kind of like stand-ins and for the sex scene just kind of like talking to each other which is like okay i'm sure that does that does happen in movies it's just a very weird thing to really put so much emphasis on in this film and you know chris marshall going off to america and you know meeting nothing but (laughs) over the top stereotypes of americans and then in the middle of it you have like oh this really kind of achingly heartfelt story of a marriage that seems to be teetering on the verge of collapse yeah. got like, oh, this, this could have been a nice story in and of itself about all of the, the rest of the stuff going on yeah she's the only thing in the film that actually feels real and I remember mm. for some fucking reason Ed I can't remember why but I ended up seeing the deleted scenes of Love Actually which <laughs> also they decided to patch people in Africa talking about love and in a way that doesn't that wasn't like horribly stereotypical of Africa mm. at all I could remember but still trying to sort of say like well you know they're people and they get crushes on each other and they think that so and so is totally out of their league and I was like oh what this? You... <laughs> and also I think Cherry Jones and the teacher is it Cherry Jones? but the, the headmistress at the school and, and like 
long-term relationships and cancer and Laura Linney. Oh, Ed, we haven't started talking about Laura Linney. Laura Linney and Emma Thompson can save that film. Like, those, <clears> you know, if it had been a story about like Laura Linney and Emma Thompson being pals, you know, both facing their... Oh, yeah, Laura Linney is one of those ones I will watch pretty much anything in PS, um, which is great, Gin Divine. Interestingly mm. enough, th- those two films are cemented in my head together, Ed, for the reason that um, I also love Gabriel Byrne, and oh, yeah. Gabriel Byrne and Laura Linney play uh, a couple, uh, either divorced or together, in Gin Divine and PS, so that's why they have forged in my head. <laughs> but very different, it- very different couples, very different vibes. <laughs> Uh, Gin Devine's the one that's based on the Raymond Carver short story, isn't it? So much water, so close to home, it is indeed. Yes, but uh, also is uh, adapted as part of Shortcuts. Yes. Yes, very good movie, that. Very uh, underrated. Totally, so, so good. Really unsettling. Um, Mm. And then I think, I mean, maybe it's going over over ground we've, we've trod on before, but... It would be remiss of me not to mention uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't have him on my list just because I assumed we'd be talking. <laughs> I wouldn't need the reminder. <laughs> Same. But, but yeah, like he was definitely someone who, you know, like in the years since since his death, I think everyone kind of has definitely come round to the point of view of like, oh yeah, he was probably like the best actor of his generation, certainly the best American actor of his generation. But even at the time, like I feel the again like you know talking about these actors who are very compassionate his ability to really breathe life into these characters to really kind of embody so many different kinds of characters like if you just i think we talked about this again fairly recently but if you look at him his work in that kind of stretch in like 98 to 99 2000 where you look at his performance in boogie uh, 97 even if you look at his performance in boogie nights and compare it to what he's doing in even just like the movies that he worked made with with Paul Thomas Anderson, the five movies they made together, mm. yeah, like there's such a wide difference between like his small performance in Hard Eight, where he's this like really cocky, uh, overconfident gambler who has like shares a scene with Philip Baker Hall, um, to his role in Boogie Nights, where he's just like such this kind of self-loathing guy who's got no sense of confidence in himself and who's just like completely racked by his kind of like his closetedness and all this to his performance in Magnolia where he's just like such a font of empathy in that movie someone who's just really trying to do the right thing and coming up against resistance sometimes in the form of the voice of Paul F. Tompkins you know the whole way um and then you know punch drunk love where he is just like such a force of nature such like such anger and such unrestrained disdain for the people around him and then the master which is like such a great performance like it's really amazing to think that he did such different work for the same director and at the same time he was doing like so much different stuff in so many different genres as well Mm, mm. uh yeah so just yeah (laughs) <laughs> just an incredible actor yeah. still feel very sad that we're not getting more movies by featuring him so we end this week's episode as we end all our episodes of Shot Reverse Shot Recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well Emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week I don't know if anyone's aware of this but Sophie Ellis Baxter is a key worker because she is broadcasting disco from her kitchen um, ah. every Friday at 6.30 BST on Instagram live and it just filled me with joy, Ed. I know a lot of other people are doing things like that. Like Robin, for example, is doing with her tea trolley of techno. <laughs> it's nice to see. <laughs> I think we have the same tea trolley from IKEA, which is quite nice. Um, but uh, there's something about Sophie Ellis Bexter because it's just incredibly chaotic. There's like all of her, her many redheaded sons of various ages <laughs> are kind of um, crawling about and she's still got it and she loves putting on a show and it's often this the same if not similar set list but she plays all the hits and for for about 20 minutes uh you're in or maybe it's a bit longer than that i've uh, 20 minutes and i'm done but it's enough glitter and uh joy to keep me going through the week so yeah i would i would say it's culture it's uh yeah sophie ellis bexter's kitchen disco (laughs) Cool. 
I'm going to recommend a short film by Spike Lee, which he put out this week. Uh, I believe it's just called New York, New York, which is a short sort of three-minute video set to New York, New York, by uh, being sung by uh, Frank Sinatra, of shots of empty spaces in New York. You know, like he's clearly going around all the boroughs, taking, you know, kind of taking footage of places that are usually bustling like Wall Street or Grand Central Station or small places like just, you know, basketball courts where people are usually playing and editing them all together in ways that are often incredibly striking. You know, I think a lot of people have commented on there's one moment where he transitions a from a shot of a basketball hoop where he's spinning around to, like, the clock in Grand Central Station and it's just this, like, really amazing little... Connect, point of connection between you know something that's so big and iconic a part of New York imagery to something that is you know just something people do on on their days you know just kind of go out and throw some basketballs around but it's a really sweet tribute to the city I think it's something that really understands how iconic New York is that you know someone like me who's only been there a couple of times for a few days just feels this real overwhelming sense of emotion at seeing the place emptied out but also getting a sense of the resilience to it i think there's such love for the city underpinning it all from you know a filmmaker who has made so many of his movies about new york and who really understands the rhythm and the voice of the city uh, it's really great he put it on his instagram and i'll put a link to that in the show notes but yeah like if you, i'm sure if people just search for like spike lee new york short film uh, you'll you'll find it quickly enough and it's just a really wonderful little short. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify all the usual places. Rate us, review us and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You'll, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.